This week on the show, we talk about OpenZFS snapshots, OpenSUSE on Bastille in a jail, printing with Netcat, the new OpenSense and PFSense Plus software release are available, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 416, Netcat Printing, recorded on the 11th of August, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoids. Find them at tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Woohoo! Here we are with a fresh episode for you, like pretty much every week since now. And that continues until the foreseeable future, at least. And we have headlines for this week with Let's Talk OpenZFS Snapshots. Yeah, uh, so this article over on my company's website, clarasystems.com, uh, builds on a previous one we did on the basics of ZFS snapshot management. And we demonstrate how you can use ZFS boot environments uh, and expand on those concepts and see how boot environments work. And you know what's the cost of having a snapshot? What's the cost of deleting a snapshot? How much space is used by snapshots? And putting all that together. Yeah, and it's part of a series of articles about OpenZFS. Yeah, uh, we've got uh, Drew Levine writing a nice series of various ZFS articles. And a couple oh. other people writing articles as well uh, on ZFS. And then we have a whole set of articles about uh, other stuff as well. Like uh, Tom, who also hosts BSD Now when I'm not here, uh, mm -hmm. has written a whole bunch of different ones about uh, networking stuff. There's some really exciting ones coming up, including one about the Rack TCP stack. Uh, that one's not out yet, but it's coming up. Um, and then lots of other stuff. Are you looking for authors for these? Uh, or yes, are... actually, if you look on our Twitter account, at uh, Clara Systems, or I think at Clara Inc. Yes, at Clara Inc. Um, we have uh, a post up there with a link if you are interested in uh, helping us write some more of these articles about uh, FreeBSD and ZFS. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, so, yeah, as Alan mentioned, how are snapshots good for you and what does it cost you? Probably not as much as not having them. So if you're already using snapshots and aren't as a, uh, an aggressive snapshot pruner, you've probably wondered, how many snapshots is too many? Since there's no just thing as no such thing, sorry, as an infinite storage capacity, your available disk space is an obvious limiting factor. But at what point will snapshots result in a performance hit? Unlike other file systems, the existence of one of those thousands of snapshots has no impact on the performance of the file system. Reading and writing files performs the same way either. So, however, the performance of administrative operations like listing and deleting snapshots are impacted by the number of snapshots that exist in each dataset. Is it okay to have hundreds of snapshots? Assuming sufficient storage capacity, what about having thousands or ten thousands of snapshots? In our experience, over a thousand snapshots per dataset starts to cause significant performance issues when listing, creating, replicating, and destroying snapshots. Yes, even destroying takes time. Um, the performance impact there is not related to the total number of snapshots on the system, but the snapshots on each dataset. So 100 datasets each with 100 snapshots will see no performance impact on listing, like that of this list-t uh, snap while a single dataset with 2,000 snapshots may take seconds to return the list of snapshots. While you may never need to store that many snapshots, you still want to get the most value for the space snapshots consume over time. And yes, if you Google for that, uh, the internet doesn't give you a definitive answer uh, to how many snapshots is like the upper limit or too many, with answers ranging from, ah, don't worry about it, to... It depends. While not satisfying, the crux of the matter is there's no definitive answer as everyone's storage system and data is different. Yeah, you know, SSDs will do it a bit faster than hard drives and it depends how much other stuff is happening on the system, how much of an impact this reading is going to have. But in general, you know, you can have thousands of snapshots and it'll be fine. Just if you go overboard, you will start to notice, but it won't necessarily, uh, importantly, it won't impact your actual applications in the way I remember, uh, Benedict, when you and I went to that um, open source data center conference in Berlin, and uh, I think the talk before ours was about using LVM snapshots for MySQL databases, or yeah. MariaDB databases. And they were like, yeah, after you take the first snapshot, half your performance is gone. 
And every snapshot you take after that takes off about another 20%. That kind of prevents you from taking those. Well, ZFS doesn't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, not in that uh, <laughs> early uh, amount of snapshots. So yeah, so the, then the question is, how is data modified to actually understand how snapshots work? Um, so, it, But it's crucial to understand this, uh, when and how often it makes sense to create these snapshots. Ideally, you want to create snapshots that matter and deliver the most value. For an example, consider a web server where the content changes only when there's a new product launch or if there's a new software release for an existing product, or the web team does its periodic sweep to refresh and improve the content. It makes sense to take a snapshot before the content changes. The web team may want to keep an archive of previous versions of the website for several years. In this case, the number of snapshots is minimal since they're stored for a long time and depending upon the amount of content changes, there may be quite a few differences between snapshots. Well, if you have a static website, you could also actually, you know, provide the snapshots content since that is read-only, no one can modify it. <laughs> so that, right? <laughs> so try to deface this website. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so this case is quite different from a file server which stores a home directory of many users or even a personal workstation that you work on all day. These use cases tend to benefit from automated snapshots on a regular schedule, say 15, 30, uh, every 60 minutes during the work hours, which results in a lot of snapshots whose value tends to quickly diminish over time. And when users are making the changes to files, how do you determine the value and how often to make the snapshots and how long to keep them uh, of those file changes? So, of course, it depends. If the system administrator is making changes to config files, there's a great value in keeping previous changes, at least until the changes are validated. If a user is making changes to a spreadsheet, periodic snapshot may or may not catch a specific change they wish to recapture. And then they talk about what is the cost of storing snapshots, like not in in money or at least uh, well, not, not too storage soon. Storage space costs money. So I guess it's it, it does, but yeah, it's, this is about uh, disk space. If you have a lot of storage capacity, the cost of archiving snapshots can be low. However, scheduled snapshots do add up. Consider the math. Taking one snapshot of a data set every hour results in 168 snapshots per week. In other words, it would take about six weeks on that schedule to achieve that more than 1,000 snapshots per data set performance hit. For this example, one would want to consider if a snapshot was needed every hour of every day, as well as when to start pruning older snapshots. Ask yourself, is there value in keeping a snapshot of a dataset at 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. from three months ago? One month ago? Last week? Yeah, I did that earlier on a student machine where I was like, I was not sure how often I would need this. And then after a couple of weeks, I decided, no, the hourly snapshots don't make sense. It's, it's okay if I do a, a weekly yeah, but at the same time, usually the right answer is, yes, take snapshots every hour. Just after, say, four days, you only need the even-numbered hours. And after 10 days, you only need, you know, the 6 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. and midnight snapshots, not all of them. And yeah. you can just keep filtering it down. Because the further back in time you need to go, the less granularity you need on, you know, which hour. If, it, if you're going back yeah. two weeks, it's probably not going to be much difference between the 10 a.m. and the 11 a.m. Uh, but if you're looking at yesterday, there could be a big difference between what the snapshot at 10 a.m. contains versus 11 a.m. Mm. A lot can happen uh, in terms of a file system in an hour. Well, you don't want to have to lose an hour of your work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rather than uh, starting from scratch. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Or have a rolling snapshot where the older ones are rolled into uh, days, months, weeks, and so on. Exactly. You just want to basically, as they get older, you prune them uh, so that you keep fewer and fewer from each day, but you still keep one from each day or each week. And, and yeah, as they get older, you you know you only need to keep one a week for uh, once you get back more than a couple months. And then it's the question how much space is being used by snapshots, because that could be a little bit elusive at first. So you start by listing the space property of the pool. So ZFS list minus O space. Uh, there's a little snippet here as an example. Yeah, so space is a little shortcut that gives you a whole bunch of different uh, properties all at once. So you don't have to type out, it's like used, referred, written, and a couple other ones or something to that effect. Yeah, that's very handy. And so he gives, as Alan mentioned, these columns, and each of them have a different uh, property. Well, name is easy, the name of the file system, pool or data set. Uh, the available column is the available storage capacity in that pool. 
or on that uh, specific uh, yeah it's data per set. data set normally in a pool the amount of available space is shared between all the data sets but because you have you can have quotas and reservations it could be different it's just not by default yeah then there's used which is the amount being used obviously uh, but with any file system, OpenZFS performance will start to suffer when it gets close to capacity. Typically, you want to stay below 80% or consider adding more space, buy more disks when you <laughs> approach 90%. Uh, then there's used snap. That's where the important measures are. That's the amount consumed by snapshots of this file system. Then there's used data set, amount being used by this file system. There's, an, there's a difference, uh, used snap versus used DS. Then there's used ref reserve, which is the amount, the minimum amount of space even, guaranteed to this file system. So if you use uh, reservations, that's um, accounted there. Yeah, and so used... the number that it shows there will be how much of the reservation isn't used yet. So how much of the yeah. space that's taken up by this data set is still used by the reservation, meaning it's not being used by um, the actual data yet. And there's used child to, you know, see how many child data sets is consume as much okay so now oh yeah you can use the used by snapshots properties that if it's get used by snapshots on a specific data set and that will tell you how much is used by snapshots alone for this data set uh what else is there we can look at there's another example there ah yeah to get uh so you use the zfs list dash t all property which lists all of them but you filter it uh, by name, written, refer, and used, and grab for a specific user. And there you get only those data sets, the uh, snapshots of those. The written property is useful for understanding snapshot growth as it represents the amount of reference space written to the data sets since that snapshot was taken, so after uh, that point in time. The used column indicates how much of the data is unique to that data set. In other words, how much space uh, will be freed if that particular snapshot is deleted. There's more in the article and definitely check your pool before it fills up with snapshots that you probably don't need all of them. But, you know, you're going to be glad you had the snapshots. So, oh, yeah. Well, well, sometimes it gets to be a pain to go clean up snapshots when you're running low on space. Uh, that feels a lot better than doing something and being like, crap, I don't have a snapshot to go back to, do I? I should have made one, yeah. <laughs> and now it's too late. Okay, then we have OpenSUSE in Bastille, which is new. Uh, at least it was for me. Uh, so for people who are completely new, Bastille is BastilleBSD.org, the um, jail management system. Yeah, uh, so in this article, uh, Peter goes on to talk about uh, how to run OpenSUSE Linux inside a FreeBSD jail. So as the uh, FreeBSD Linux emulation layer has gotten uh, better over the last uh, year or so. Uh, it's been possible to run Ubuntu and uh, possibly some other Linuxes inside a jail so that you can uh, even just use their package manager to install like Ubuntu packages. Uh, like I think uh, I know at least one person who uses uh, a Ubuntu install in a jail in a Ubuntu version of Firefox uh, to be able to just have that all work on their computer. So anyway, uh, Peter goes on, why am I doing this? So he says, last week, when the latest version of Vestile, which is the jail management system for FreeBSD, was released, it included experimental Linux support. Uh, the original author needed Ubuntu, so that's what they implemented, but Peter prefers OpenSUSE. Uh, so with some ugly hacks, he got OpenSUSE up and running inside a Vestile jail. I was asked to document how I did it on the blog, and since it didn't really fit on my sudo or syslogng blogs, I put up this new uh, personal blog to, to hold this. They do say, note, OpenSUSE in a FreeBSD jail is barely usable. The way I got it installed is a pretty ugly hack, even in my own view, but it works, so people might be able to find this as a useful starting point. So starting with some preparation, first, obviously you need a FreeBSD machine and you need the latest Bastille installed. Um, if you install Bastille from Git rather than from the FreeBSD ports or packages, uh, note that it doesn't include the uh, it doesn't install the config file by default. You'll have to manually copy uh, user local etc bestial bestial.conf.sample to bestial.conf. Um, but once that was done, I made sure bestial works fine for a regular FreeBSD jail. And then the next step was to get Ubuntu running. First, as with uh, FreeBSD-based jails in bestial, you need to run the bootstrap command. 
Uh, if Linux support is not yet enabled, Bastille will do this uh, for you, modifying the config files to load the necessary kernel modules. So if you do Bastille Bootstrap Focal, which is the name of the most recent release of Ubuntu, uh, it will modify your config to enable uh, the Linux kernel module and the Linux slash proc file system and the Linux slash sys file system and get all those up and running. Uh, and then it will go and download Ubuntu and do all that setup. Uh, now you can create your first Linux-based jail and test that everything works as expected. So they did Bastille create dash capital L Ubuntu, uh, Focal as they named the jail and then give it an IP address. Uh, and then that boots up, uh, installs Ubuntu and gets it going. And then when you do JLS, you can see they now have a Ubuntu jail. So now you can reach the console by just running uh, Bastille console. Uh, and then when you do a, a uname-a, you get the confusing results of Linux Ubuntu, uh, kernel 3.17, previously 13.0. <laughs> but you can apt-get install, you know, Python 3-BS4 or whatever, and it will install those Ubuntu packages, and it's good to go. So uh, there's no dedicated installation method for OpenSUSE built into Bastille yet. And I'm not aware of a tool similar to the DE Bootstrap uh, that Debian and uh, Ubuntu use, but for OpenSUSE, uh, that could do a bootstrap of a distribution. Instead, what I downloaded is a ready-to-use uh, OpenSUSE operating system image and replaced the contents of the Ubuntu directory under user local bestial releases. So they downloaded uh, a pre-built, uh, I guess, VM image, or I guess it's just a tarball, uh, but a disk image of OpenSUSE, and then just basically untarred that in the in place of uh, where Bastille keeps Ubuntu. And it says there's a bunch of different images of OpenSUSE available on the download site, uh, but the above one seems to be small enough to contain uh, the basics for getting some packages installed and so on. So next, they create another jail based on that Ubuntu image, which in practice actually contains OpenSUSE now. Uh, there will be plenty of error messages as the script tries to run various Debian package management tools, but the end you will have an OpenSUSE image up and running. And so then when they run the console, uh, that doesn't seem to quite work yet, but they're playing around with it. They use jexec to, to run bash inside the jail, and they were able to run DNF and try to install packages, but they were getting errors. It looks like they need to fix the resolve.conf. Once they did that, they could run DNF install uh, Python 3-beautiful soup 4, <laughs> And uh, you can watch the package manager install that. Uh, so say, I'm still not convinced how useful this is, but you uh, can actually run OpenSUSE uh, on FreeBSD inside Bastille. Uh, you can try other OpenSUSE images or install more software in the jail. Note that Linux support is still experimental in Bastille and running OpenSUSE this way is a terrible hack. But uh, as this hack lets me run my favorite two operating systems on the same machine, I love this hack. <laughs> it's kind of a Frankenstein thing. With a little work, you know, it Bastille could contain the right instructions to do this instead of having to, you know, do this nasty clobberly Ubuntu image <laughs> and replace the files part and and know to run, you know, DNF instead of apt uh, to install stuff and so on. But like I said, the support for Ubuntu is still experimental. So this uh, support for OpenSUSE is a, a crazy hack, but it does work. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah, I guess people, once they see that it works, uh, will start hacking on it some more, and then we may have <laughs> an, an indistinguishable open source, but on BSD. In the news roundup, we have also something for you, because it's cups printing with Netcat time. This article, William Blankenship writes that I recently migrated my daily laptop to FreeBSD. I have a networked HP LaserJet. Who doesn't? Um, after 10 plus years of cops on Linux, I had been dreaming setting up this printer on yet another machine. But the day came. I had to print quite a few documents, so I decided to bite the bullet and set up printing on FreeBSD. Off to the FreeBSD handbook I went. Conveniently, they have a chapter on printing. Given my past experience with cups, I figured this was going to be a treacherous journey, so I read the entire document before getting started. Section 4 stood out. Direct printing to network printers depend on the abilities of the printer, but most accept print jobs on port 9100 and Netcat can be used with them. So you can do NC or Netcat, uh, your IP address or DNS name of the printer, then port 
9100 and then redirect a sample text document to it. Okay, so I had to read this several times. What the FSCK? Use Netcat? Surely I was missing some wizardry in the FreeBSD kernel that configured a network printer as some local network target aliased by NetLaser, uh, which handled all the printing magic for me. So NetLaser is his uh, DNS name. But how? Years of arbitrarily picking from a list of similarly named print devices in cups prevented my brain from accepting what was written. I was confused. After trying to decipher the other sections in the document, I decided I would go for it. So it did netcat, the IP address, 9100, redirecting file.pdf. It just prints. Wow. <laughs> Head explodes. After 10 plus years of Linux distributions pushing cups on me, over a decade of this complex stack of drivers and daemons that I never quite trusted but couldn't live without, FreeBSD comes along and it's like, yeah, just use Netcat. And there you're right. Just use Netcat. Bye, cops. We were talking <laughs> about this, I guess, yesterday in my uh, local BSD user group. Uh, actually, cups wasn't that bad on FreeBSD when we set up. Uh, I have a, a Samsung network printer. I've not actually tried just netcatting the PDF directly to it. Um, but we did get cups set up so that we could print from FreeBSD because we needed to print, uh, I guess, this was five or six so years ago um, when... Andrew was a co-op student. He needed to print out this evaluation form so that I could fill it out for him. And uh, so I made him try to do it from FreeBSD. Hmm. <laughs> and he got it working. Hmm. Um, then he also got it working to scan, but that wasn't over the network. For that, he had to plug the USB cable in from the from my network printer to the FreeBSD machine. Uh, and it would only do the flatbed scanner. It wouldn't do the document feeder. But he did manage to actually print out a form, have me fill it out, and scan it. Uh, with FreeBSD and make it work. Ah, yes. I mean, in earlier days you had LPR and then you could, you know, redirect it to the printing device and slash dev or yeah, use there, a pipe. There's a, there's a file somewhere where you can configure LPR for network printers, right? Yeah, yeah. What What's it called? Uh, so. ETC something. Printcast <laughs> or something probably. It's probably in um, the printing chapter as well. Yeah, I, th I think we ripped some of the LPR stuff out because most laser printers, if you give them LPR stuff, they will print one line on each page. Yeah, that's not what you usually want. Um. <laughs> no. I remember uh, most of my experience with this is so old now. It's got to be 20 years ago um, trying to replace a dot matrix printer with a laser one. Mm. Uh, at the power plant, they had this dot matrix printer and it printed one line every 10 minutes or something uh, to provide a log of status over time. And obviously, yeah. when they tried to just replace it with a laser printer, it printed one page every 10 minutes with one line on it, which was that not... That seems wasteful. <laughs> yes, it was wasteful. It was not useful, not what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, and so they had to go find somewhere where they could get a dot matrix printer to replace this one that broke down. Mm. Luckily, printing has become less and less these days now that we can all of these print and sign and online thingies. Yes, less paper is good. Uh, and... Yeah, a lot of them are pretty terrible, but most printers do have some option of being able to send the file to print to it in a way that it doesn't have to care what operating system you're running and you don't need drivers. Uh, mm. You know, I've seen some terrible ones. Like, I think mine, it's not configured that way, but it, it supports, like, you FTP the files to it and it prints them. Ah. <laughs> uh, and stuff like that. But yes, as it turns out... Uh, PDFs are basically postscripts instructions on how to draw something, and printers understand that, and so uh, it will just print it. Oh yeah, if you're doing a lot of LaTeX like I do for lecture uh, content, you you definitely know. Oh, of course, you can compile this to a PS and then the PS to PDF. Although now there's a direct way, but that's how you understand where it is all coming from, and this is instructions how to actually print a page on. Yeah, piece of paper. Okay, um, going into networking some more. OpenSense 21.18 has been released. Yeah, uh, the big change here is the upgrade to PHP 7.4, as they previously announced, alongside a few other updates uh, that are going into this 21.1 series. Although the other big addition or news here is that the first release candidate of their 21.7 release is also, uh, I guess, should be out by now. So if you're looking at uh, testing out the next version, uh, that's available now as well. Oh, good. So good to see that uh, firewalls keep updating and adding features and protections. 
to keep us safe in uh, these days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this being the long-term yeah. support thing, it's mostly uh, updates to plugins and, and ports and so on, uh, and a couple of uh, interface bug fixes and some new translations. Ah, yeah, good translations uh, to have. Oh, and also there is um, PFSense Plus software version 21.5.1 also available now. And uh, what's new there? Ah, the highlights uh, are the corrections for performance regressions on 32-bit ARM systems, native package builds for 32-bit ARM systems, and a workaround for PHP instability on NetGate 3100. Okay. Um, yeah, there's an upgrade note with an important in all caps or in, <laughs> in bold. Uh, proceed with caution when upgrading PFSense software while COVID-19 travel restrictions are in effect. You might not get to your firewall, probably. Yeah, be uh, careful with remote upgrades to your firewall because, mm -hmm. you know, if you have to go on site to fix it and you might not be able to. Like even with uh, the data center where I have a bunch of my servers, you have to make an appointment ahead of time and have sent, you know, the COVID disclosure warning and, you know, signs and papers and so on. Uh, yeah, that can be avoided. test that you have a negative result and so on before you can go to the data center. Yeah, if there's no remote hands there. Um, yeah, so due to the change in native package builds on this release, all components of the base system and packages will be reinstalled as a part of the upgrade. And this must be done to ensure that the firewall contains a consistent set of packages from the same build environment, even if the versions didn't change. This process will increase the time required for the upgrade to complete. So be patient. Uh, this is a normal uh, thing. They might uh, scroll down some warnings and error messages while the upgrade is in process. In particular, errors from PHP and package updates may be observed, uh, but seems like this is normal and uh, expected. In nearly all cases, these errors are a harmless side effect of the inconsistent state of the system during the upgrade from changes in the operating system, uh, the LIPS and PHP itself. Uh, once the upgrade completes, the system will be in a consistent state again, and only errors which persist after the upgrade are significant. So upgrade first, uh, the firewall configuration, they have a link to an article to show how to do that, and then it should all be fine. And it's interesting as they get closer and closer to their ultimate goal of PFSense just being available as a package that you can throw on top of regular FreeBSD. Mm. That makes upgrades easier and <laughs> less sweaty hands. Okay, uh, then we head into our Beastie Bits this week with a Mac-inspired FreeBSD release. So MAC, that means many things. Is it mandatory access control or is it media access? No, this one is <laughs> actually... Uh, Macintosh OS. Ah, okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> That's still out there. Um, so this gives us a link to GitHub. Uh, I, 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 is it Arix? Arix? A-I-R-Y-X. I think it's Arix. Maybe. So Arix, let's call it that, is a new open source OS project that aims to provide a similar experience and some compatibility with macOS on x86 64-bit uh, systems. It builds on the solid foundations of FreeBSD, existing open source packages in the same space and new code to fill the gaps. Okay. So that's interesting. It seems like it has source compatibility with macOS applications. Similar GUI metaphors? Well, I think their, their goal is to provide source compatibility with the Cocoa API. Mm. I don't know how far along they are in that goal yet. Yeah, there's no like screenshots or something. Or, uh... But yeah, they note that, you know, obviously because it's FreeBSD based, all FreeBSD packages, ports, and applications will work. With the Linux emulation layer FreeBSD has, most Linux applications will work. And then if they get their open source Cocoa uh, APIs working, then... Uh, those applications may compile and run as well, mm. unless they need the GNU step extensions, which is a bit different. Okay. Could this also be used like uh, as a rescue system for macOS? I don't know. Uh, macOS has a rescue system built in. Yeah, right. Oh, you there's screenshots. Like, some button there. You should know this better. I, 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 yeah, know. right. I've You've been, been a Mac user for last year. <laughs> how long? Uh, don't remind me. But I found the website. It's erics.org, and there's a screenshot section. So it gives an, an impression how it looks. Ah, there is screenshots. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that looks cool. Okay, yeah, it, it gives an impression how it how it uh, works and what it looks like. So yeah, check it out if you're interested in compatibility on that front. Um, then we have implement unprivileged change root on free ah that's a freebsd commit of note yes uh so this is a new commit uh by edward naparala and it implements unprivileged chroot so normally chroot can only be done by the root user uh, but with this um no longer the case 
So this builds on recently introduced no new privs flag to implement unprivileged chroot. So basically, you enable it by setting security.bsd.unprivileged.chroot. Once that's enabled, it allows non-root processes to use the chroot uh, command, provided they have the no new privs flag set. The chroot utility also gets a new flag, dash n, which will set that no new privs uh, before trying to chroot. Inside that chroot, it automatically disables set UID, uh, that, which I think is that's what that no new privs flag does, uh, so that it's sure that that won't let you do anything you're not normally allowed to do. Ah, so so uh, services could basically jail themselves in this way. Well, uh, some already did, but they would go into the ch root before they change their username back from root down to the the unprivileged user. But this would even just let you, you know, for example, create a ch root to to compile FreeBSD in or something uh, without having to be root. Oh, okay. That's good. But yeah, basically you can do whatever you would uh, normally be able to do uh, in a ch root, but you don't have to be root to do it anymore. Mm. Yeah, I can do that on the spot without, you know, going to sudo or some other way of getting root. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, it's good that we get more improvements on this way. I mean, we we all like, oh, there's jails now, and uh, for for a while, and uh, change root is all done, and it's key. It's kind of interesting to see that people still build on that and make it even more secure. Uh, what's next? Okay, here is Initware, a system defork that runs on BSD. Yeah, so this is an interesting approach uh, to just basically take systemd and uh, make changes to it so that it'll actually run on FreeBSD. And it turns out they've got it to run on FreeBSD 13 and above uh, with most of the functionality. On NetBSD 9 and above, they have, that's uh, apparently the native platform, so that's they did NetBSD first even. Uh, Dragonfly, it mostly works, but it doesn't do any of the system management stuff. Uh, on OpenBSD, uh, there's no system or session management yet. Uh, and they're obviously, they actually have been testing it on Linux as well. And they provide that has all the functionalities, but note that the build system is not yet properly set up because it was targeted towards uh, compiling on BSD. Oh, right. Okay. Interesting. And apparently they also have lofty goals of, of making this work on macOS and Illumos as well. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and it looks like all it ends up depending on on BSD is uh, Dbus and the libidnotifykq adapter. Oh. Oh yes, they have a support matrix for platform support ah, and and uh, libudev-devd adapter to uh, make it be able to use devd to get device support. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so it is uh, because it's a fork of the actual systemd. It is GPL licensed, uh, but you know, as a port, this might uh, end up unlocking a lot of things as far as. Uh, making sure desktop applications and environments continue to work properly on the BSD. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, we've seen people try to do something similar to this. I think there was a, an open BSD one a couple of years ago that just tried to provide I think, the login D part of it. Yeah. Uh, because I think GNOME or something needed that. And uh, while obviously not as satisfying as having not needing it or, um, you know, having a BSD license thing, I think this is, practically speaking, the easiest way forward to make sure that uh, we can keep all of our favorite applications working, even if those upstreams only want to target systemd. Mm. And there's an easy way for uh, people to migrate to those without having to rewrite a whole bunch of init system uh, scripts. All right, then um, speaking about old Unixes, <laughs> remember Multics, which got a new release apparently. So that's over the Multics wiki. And this is version um 12.7 and what's uh, oh yeah, let's talk about purpose first um <laughs> so this wiki here is uh written or created to provide information to users wishing to run multics under the dpshm emulator uh while other resources exist on both the subject of multics and dpsm8 simulator uh this wiki focuses on how to install and um yeah well the, the simulator and multics on your machine how to configure and administrator it and then uh how to use it and so where's the latest release here a little bit further down um new features volume pool support for hierarchy backup so the volume backup support has long allowed tapes to be allocated from a volume pool however up until this release this support has not extended to the hierarchy backup daemons if a volume pool is set up and configured for the incremental catch-up or complete backup daemons, tapes will be allocated from the configured pool. 
A single pool can be used or separate pools per backup type can be employed. Ah, see the info segments for the backup dump, start dump, catch up dump and complete dump command for more info on using volume pools with the hierarchy backup commands and also see the updated information or documentation on these commands in the Multics administration, maintenance and operations commands manual. That's gb64.errata.info. Then they also have history comments uh, not allowed in uh, segments or in info segments more like prior to this release it wasn't possible to include history comments to track changes in info segments now with an updated version of the history comment you can and there's extra information in the help info underscore sec.hcom they also have mbuild which is a new sub subsystem uh, which has been introduced that helps developers prepare additions to the software libraries or changes to software in those libraries the system helps to compile uh, source and object archive updating, binding, checking history comments, and performing source comparison, as well as installing changes to the system libraries. Okay, well, this is Multics. Uh, it's not too familiar with this, but um, I hear Unix came from that. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Ah, yes, and we couldn't help ourselves to link the open source uh, voices interview with Tom Jones that our, our producer JT did. Yeah, so our, our producer JT has his own podcast called Open Source Voices and uh, he finagled uh, Tom into an interview. Yeah, so he tries to um, interview people uh, behind the open source software uh, about their motivations, their ideas and many more ideas and that's an interesting viewpoint that you normally don't get from just reading release notes or stuff like that because that shows the uh, people behind the, the software, behind the keyboard and um, yeah, it's interesting. Try try listening to it. It has a couple of interesting people on it already. And then, since we're on history already, we have some uh, PDP-11 engineering drawings for you on Twitter. They were posted. Oh, that's our, uh, yeah, <laughs> very own uh, JT itself. And he has a couple pictures from engineering drawings. Wow. Oh, I think I saw them a couple days ago. Yeah. So this uh, is what you use to build computers, or at least document them. Well, yeah. You know, when one computer was the side of an entire rack of computers now, uh, it was important to understand where the parts were. <laughs> and the parts were big enough and far enough apart that you could actually make a reasonable diagram. Yeah, which wire goes where. But yeah, electrotechnics to, taught today is basically the same. Like these diagrams on the last page, they are pretty much how you wire these chips and that hasn't changed too much of course they're all in integrated now and much smaller but yeah current needs to flow or be stopped in a certain register and yeah transistors all in there for the people who want to build their own pdp 11 <laughs> just for fun they probably need a couple more pages of those but i'm fairly sure tj is as happy uh, jt's um, <laughs> to provide them you just can you tell me what's on page 58 i need that one image <laughs> very nice so let's talk about our sponsor for this week before we go in our feedback and question section which is tarsnap so if you have something important that you always want to keep that should never you know leave your computer or at least be restorable at one fateful day that you need it why not try tarsnap tarsnap doesn't only backup your data it backups it in a secure way in an actually paranoid secure way it takes all your data it mushes it down it takes some um, segmentation and deduplication that makes it already smaller if there's a lot of redundancy then compresses it and then encrypts and signs it with your own personal key that's created on your computer not on some cloud provider's uh, system that you can't access uh, it's all done locally on your machine before actually the data that's now encrypted leaves your computer and it only leaves your computer and arrives at your computer in an encrypted way. That way, Tarsnap ensures that no one else can peek into your backups, which kind of may contain sensitive information. And there it sits between other backups. No one else can look at them. And then one day you need them back. You use your personal key that you hopefully save. Uh, and that is your gateway back to your own data. And then Tarsnap does the reverse and unencrypts and gives you all the backup data uh, that you have. Tarsnap has a very uh, competitive pricing model. It's very cheap. Like I just, at the beginning of the year, I uploaded my Tarsnap account with like $10 and then it uses the Tarsnap dollars I spent there for the little 10 gigabytes. Is it 10? Maybe 13 by now um, that I have backups, but it's not ruining me because I will always uh, just draw from that $10. And when it gets low, I get an email from the Tarsnap folks about 
the account getting low and then I recharge. But it's not like, oh, I have this surprise bill one day that it's like $100,000 for a reason. It's very secure and very cheap. And it runs on many operating systems, BSDs, Linux, macOS, Windows. And that's one good way of, you know, restoring the backup from one system to another. And also we had a couple episodes ago, a person using that as, uh, you know, machine migration as well. Um, you can definitely use that, but Tarzan is really just in, in intended for backing up um, your your files, not as a, <laughs> a machine migration tool. But if you are so inclined, then use that. Check out the documentation. It has more information about how it's used and uh, how you can, for example, calculate how much it would cost you to back up your local data that you want to back up. And then it can tell you, okay, this much would be backupped. And this is the estimate of how much it would cost. Check out tarsnap.com and um, start making backups. You never know when it's too late. All right, uh, we receive questions from you and we love to answer them if we can. And your question should be directed to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we can answer them in a future episode. And in this episode, we're answering these. Uh, we have, is it Oliver or all? So there's no, so usually Oliver has two eyes, but this one has just one, O-L-V-I-E-R. Maybe that got lost somehow. Um, a ZFS question, which we like. So here goes. I have some questions concerning ZFS after following Alan's webinar in an even more convinced, uh, I'm even more convinced that ZFS could be the future for one file server cluster at my work. Today, it is some Linux file system cluster with a three node uh, HA setup synced with cluster. When I started working there in October, it was one of the first issues I was asked about if I have knowledge about such setups. Being a networking guy, I'm not that firm at storage, but though ZFS could be a much better storage backend for this system. Actually, the main problem of the cluster are that under heavy write load with many small files, the cluster won't perform well, and opening directories leads to timeouts in first run. The workaround my colleagues built was to set up a Windows server in front of the HA cluster, but naturally the write performance still did not get better. In my opinion, the question is if using two mirrored PCI SSDs for the slog and L2 arc and much memory with ZFS in a RAID 10 setup, the problems could be gone. For your podcast, I think the second question is more interesting. Is there a stable cluster solution native to BSD slash ZFS with enterprise performance? Um, so if you're worried about the performance, uh, especially if these have a metadata operations that get heavy when you have a lot of small files, rather than focusing on an L2 arc, likely what you want to do with those fast SSDs is the special uh, metadata VDAP. Uh, and so that will keep all the metadata about the files, all the ZFS information uh, on the very, very fast disks so that when you need to, you know, look at the, the list of all the files in a directory and find out how large each one is and all the kind of directory listing and, and common metadata operations will come from that really fast device. And more importantly, the writes will go to that really fast device. Uh, and then the bigger stuff, if you actually try to read a file, that will come from uh, the regular storage devices. Uh, if a slog will help, it mostly depends on the type of writes. If your writes are synchronous, then a slog probably will help. But if they're asynchronous, then it probably won't. Right. Uh, as far as a native cluster setup, that depends a bit, I guess. Um, I know that Ceph and Gluster have some support for FreeBSD, but I've never really tried it in general. I find that most of the, the distributed file systems, the cluster type stuff, gets so complicated, it's easier to solve the problem in a different way hmm. um, and just use ZFS. But it really depends on your use case. Yeah, we use Ceph at our university. I'm not too um, insightful of that, but um, they also have this concept of like um, regular scrubs, but they need to do that much more often than on ZFS. Uh, like an, a nightly job that needs to finish by a certain time. Um, I'm also not too familiar with uh, the Ceph itself, but the the way they set it up is um, involved involves a lot of components and a lot of, uh, of course, redundancy that's also <laughs> needed. Um, it seems to work stable and reliably for them. Um, but again, as Alan mentioned, it, if you're into remote storage, then be sure what you um what you get there that it doesn't bite you later with the complexity because complexity is the enemy of of storage if something is complex then the management is complex and zfs was actually built with 
an easy administration by just having two commands, zpool and zfs. And um, if you do a lot of learning first to to understand how your storage works, which saves your, your files and data, the important thing of your company, then one error there could mean the end. So yeah, but all warning aside, um, there's some more. My company is trying to move to open source, but until I joined, they used SUSE and Ubuntu Linux. Now I'm substituting the Ubuntu uh, slash pound HA load balancer clusters with OpenBSD CARP Relay D setups. I don't know if it's smart to talk about FreeBSD or ZFS while the transition is still not done, but the developers of the production systems running on cluster are unsatisfied with those systems. Yeah, so during a migration, uh, I my experience is that people are already um, too busy not listening to other solutions. So in, in the form of, oh, I, I told you better, this would be better if you used system Y instead of X. Um, you would probably do it, you'd do a better job if you wait until the transition is done and then show how it works, what the, the you know drawbacks are, if there are any, and then you know, slowly talk them into ZFS and FreeBSD. If you put them uh, too much on their plate at, at one point, I I tend to receive the um, the response that people um, don't listen to you and just don't want to, you know, uh, get bothered by extra stuff while they're already working on one transition. Uh, I, I find now that the name is Oliver and not something else. So that was, was mangled on our part. Sorry for that. And uh, we corrected that in the show notes. Okay, so thanks for your um, feedback. If anyone else has any suggestions about these kind of setups, then let us know. We'll be happy to um, add a follow-up to this episode and link to it. All right, so next up is Anders with a VMs question, or VMS, <laughs> could probably uh, be something else. Uh, that goes, hi, Alan, Benedict, Tom, and JT. Excellent, everyone <laughs> involved. Uh, long-time listener, second-time emailer, enjoying the show every week. Thank you, that's great. Um, welcome back. Uh, I was wondering if you could shine some light on what happened with my ZFS pool recently. It's a FreeBSD 13 system upgraded from 12 and the pool has been upgraded. It might be easiest to explain what happened in a sequence of events. First, uh, opened the laptop lid and was greeted with a kernel panic eee, caused by a virtual box. I knew this can happen and should have stopped my VMs before I closed the lid the previous day. The stack trace filled my screen line by line very slowly, so I decided to just hold the power button to force uh, power off. Once restarted, X didn't start, and the message showed that another two or three processes had crashed with the error VM fault pager read error. I restarted one of the failed processes, and oddly enough, it seems to have started okay. Zpool status showed two checksum errors, and the status text one or more devices experienced an error, resulting in data corruption applications may be affected. I ran Zpool scrub, and when it finished, showed almost 5,000 checksum errors. Mm. I turned the computer off, removed the SSD, and reinserted it to make sure it was pushed in properly. Started the computer again, and Zpool status now said zero checksum errors and 450 data errors. Zpool status minus V showed that some pictures were corrupted, but they opened up without any visible corruption or complaints in dmessage. Okay. I ran Zpool scrub again, and after it was finished, the pool was reported as completely healthy, no checksum or data errors. It also said that scrub repaired zero bytes and with zero errors. What happened there? Is the force power off during the panic likely to be related? Was it just the SSD drive not making proper contact and resitting it removed it? Uh, it does sound like it was a, a transient error, either just caused by the, the suspend or the power loss or the drive being loose. And that, yeah, just reconnecting it and running a scrub and it turned out it could read those sectors and they weren't bad. Um, I'm guessing that the D message would have had more errors from the device if it was actually having errors reading it. Uh, but if the scrub says it's okay now, it's okay. Um, it seems most likely that it was reseeding the SSD that made the difference. Yeah, if the errors don't reappear in the same amount, then you were lucky. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. The problem with laptops is there's just not enough room to get a second SSD in there to do a mirror. Yeah. Uh, for mine, I managed to get a small SSD that fits in the slot for the, the modem, uh, where you would have like a, a 4G modem. Um, I got a tiny NVMe that fits in there, uh, but it's smaller than my hard drive. So uh, I only have a mirror of the ZFS half of the hard drive, none of the Windows half, but the Windows half doesn't matter. Yeah. Trigger some remote backup, like some ZFS send running in the background every every hour or so, so that you have at least an offsite. Right. Well, also, you know, the entire point of Tarsnap was to be able to back up your laptop even while on the road right. by doing the, the dedupe and the segmenting. Mm. 
Yeah. So in, if the disaster strikes, you want to have a second copy somewhere offsite or off the machine that you're experiencing the problems on. Um, speaking from experience. Um, <laughs> so yeah, thank you for that. Hopefully this error won't appear anytime soon. Uh, and next is Jeff with a Beehive qu guests question. And Jeff writes, Hi, Benedict, Alan, and JT. As usual, thanks for a great podcast. Thank you. I listen every week. Oh, wow. Well, we record almost every week, so... <laughs> We, we write, you read. Um, your recent discussion of Beehive and ZFS in episode 375 prompted me with a question as I've recently created a solution related to ZFS and Beehive in my own FreeBSD environment at home. I'm using Ansible and my VM Beehive to reprovision Beehive FreeBSD guests. And before booting the new guest, I'm setting the, boo, uh, uh, the host name and network information in rc.conf. Workflow goes like this. Destroy the old guest if it exists. Recreate the guest from a stored VM image. Import the zroot pool from the guest disk image via mdconfig as a temporary pool called temproot on the VM host and mount the guests at root under slash mount slash disk. Then change the necessary information in the guestrc.conf and unmount the guest disk and boot the VM. This brings me to the point of my question. Using Google and mining the FreeBSD forums was quite sufficient to find the necessary information for mounting the guest disk image. What was less clear is the right way to unmount the guests at root once I'm done. Currently, I'm doing ZFS unmount, the temp root, root slash default. Um, and then yeah. ZFS export temp root, and then mdconfig dash d dash u, zero. Uh, yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, basically, when you do a, Z, uh, or sorry, it would actually be zpool export, not ZFS export. Right. Um, but when you do the export, it will unmount anything that's still mounted. Uh, and so that's all you really need. Uh, and then you can, yes, uh, delete the mdconfig device so that the file goes back to being unused, and then you can start the uh, VM using that file. Yeah, that's uh, the right way to do it. That's what the zpool export command is for. It exports the pool and make sure it's all good to be imported on some other machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can use that. If you have built something like that, um, maybe share it somewhere on uh, maybe some GitHub uh, thingy or wherever on a personal blog, then other people could uh, use this as well if you find it production ready enough. And yeah, so it would be interesting to look at that. Maybe we'll cover it in a future episode. Uh, yeah, that's all what we have for you today, I think. Um, thank you for listening. Also to the people who are listening to us on Twitch. We're, we're streaming when Alan is uh, on the show, uh, or as much as we can. Um, yeah, let us know if you find this interesting. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your email address. And we're also announcing new uh, episodes on Twitter. Uh, twitter.com slash bsd now thank you for listening and till next week bye